This is the Monday, March 21st, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, we're hopping in our time machine, and we're traveling back to the times after the times that tried men's souls. At least that's how we always looked at it when we were in school. The date is October 19, 1781, when a combined French and American force defeats the British Redcoats at the Battle of Yorktown, Virginia. The moment the British second-in-command, General Charles O'Hara, presents the sword of his boss... General Cornwallis, to the rebels, has long been taught as the moment the American Revolution ended. In truth, the war continued to drag on for men like George Washington, Horatio Nelson, the great Lafayette, and Hyder Ali, a name you probably haven't heard of before, but he's far across the seven seas in India, and yet he's playing a role in the American Revolution. Cool. The American War for Independence touched more than just a sliver of North America sort of clinging to the Atlantic coastline. The battles raged around the globe, with clashes everywhere from the Caribbean to the Mediterranean and off the coast of Sri Lanka. Today, we're going to learn about the men who kept fighting long after O'Hara turned over his boss's sword. Our guide is Don Glickstein, and he's bringing us his debut book, After Yorktown, The Final Struggle for American Independence. Don is an award-winning journalist, having worked for several newspapers before being appointed a political press secretary and later a communications manager. You may have seen his writings on history in the Journal of the American Revolution, Columbia, Washington Magazine, and at HistoryLink.org. And if you haven't checked out his work yet, go ahead and visit his website, DonGlickstein.com. Okay, now that we know a little bit about our time-traveling companion, let's step out of the way back and experience the pivotal years after Yorktown. I'm on the line with Don Glickstein, author of After Yorktown, The Final Struggle for American Independence. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show today. Well, thanks, Dean. I'm glad to be here, and I hope that you and your listeners will have a good time. Well, I read the book, and that was certainly one good time from you, so I'm sure that our conversation is going to be a second one. It's always a gas for me to be able to talk to an author after I've read a great book and kind of hope to share that with people and bring them along on the ride. The first thing you see when you pick up a book, of course, is the cover. The cover of After Yorktown depicts the evacuation of what they then called Charlestown, South Carolina, and later Americanized into Charleston. And it was a dramatic image, and when there's that kind of cover, I find myself flipping back to it as I'm learning things, as I'm reading the book. It really made me realize that the American Revolution wasn't all those bright paintings maybe that we see in these great stories of chivalry and fine horses and this kind of thing. It's really a world war, and you write in After Yorktown that the mythology of the surrender is that the American Revolution ends uh, there and then at Yorktown, and everybody sort of goes home, and then we fast forward maybe 150 years to the special relationship, and we're all you know, reunited again, sort of, and we're all buddies. But that's not what really happened, is it? Not at all. A British army surrendered at Yorktown, but the British just grit their teeth, and King George said, hey, I'm not going to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire. We continue to fight. I never knew how far afield this was, and I was saying to you when we were pre-interviewing about the book that the idea of a world war, of course, that sounds like a terrible thing, and it's obviously a lot of suffering and a lot of ups and downs that you have, but it's exciting to learn so many new things about 
a war that we think we all know. I mean, obviously, we all think we know where our country came from and how it was born if we're history lovers and we're American history lovers. But that's not the case here. The case here is you say, well, there are all these battles. Who would have thought that you'd be in India, for instance, talking about the American Revolution or at the Rock of Gibraltar? Now, you have a journalism background, and I've worked in the media, too. I consume a whole lot of news. So I wanted to ask you with an eye towards that broad scope, how that career prepared you for writing after Yorktown and resisting the urge as you do in the book that many authors have. It always makes me put a book down, frankly, where they'll start putting their words in Washington's mouth. So this is your first book. So how did it impact? Well, it's my first book, but as you said, I've written a lot. And I think the discipline that journalism gives you is to separate fact from opinion. It's to question assumptions. One assumption that you see in a lot of American history books written by American historians is that the American Revolution was the Patriots against the British. Well, there were a lot of people who considered themselves Patriots who fought against Washington. Native Americans certainly were patriotic in their own way. Certainly, Loyalist Americans were patriotic in their own way. And in fact, General Guy Carleton, the British general, complained at one point to Washington toward the end of the war that he couldn't stop this warfare between Americans against Americans, the Loyalists against the rebels. So journalists can question the assumptions about using loaded language like patriot or even American. A lot of histories about the American Revolution talk about the Americans versus the British. Loyalists were American. Native Americans were American. African Americans were American. There was no clear boundary. Everything was a shade of gray. I thought that when I looked at the cover, I said, because obviously it's an etching. There's no Kodachrome back then. Come to think of it, there's no Kodachrome now anymore. All we have is the Paul Simon song. But it's <laughs> gray because this was a time of shifting alliances. Um, I'm from New Jersey, and I remember one of the early things I read was Washington saying, I don't know where New Jersey stands. My army goes across, and they cheer us. Then the British drive us out, and they're cheering them. <laughs> and that's very much uh, what was happening, and it lends itself to history, but not necessarily to good fiction. And fiction, you make the anticlimax as short as possible, right? The good guys triumph. If you have a love story, the guy and the girl kiss, you roll the credits as fast as you can and get people out of the theater. So what inspired you to write after Yorktown to sort of explode that myth that you talked about, that the Redcoats surrender in 1783, everything ends? Well, I, I'll answer that question in a second, but just to get back to what you were talking about, you don't know who the enemy is. There was a protest song written during the Vietnam War, I think it was by Phil Oakes, that talked about white boots marching in a yellow land. And in this case, it was red coats marching in a land where you didn't know who your friend was and who your foe was, just like we have in the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan. It's hard to be white boots marching in a land where you don't know where you stand. It's difficult, but what inspired me to write the book? To answer your question, I grew up in upstate New York in Schenectady, and my family's from Boston. I was surrounded by the American Revolution. You know, there are two kinds of people in the world I like to joke. <laughs> there are Civil War people and there are Revolution people. There are Washington people and there are Lincoln people. Well, I was definitely a Revolution person and a Washington person because it was what surrounded me. And when I was a kid, we used to have things called newspapers. And <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the newspapers were printed on paper. The presses they used back then were hot lead. The type was made of hot lead, the plates, using linotype machines. And in that particular printing process, they sometimes ended up with columns that were a little short for the end of the page. So they had fillers, and these fillers were in essence, trivia that just filled the end of the column. One trivia, one filler that always stuck with me, and it was inaccurate, as I now know, but this filler said that the last battle of the American Revolution was fought in September 1782 at Fort Henry, West Virginia. I don't know why that stuck with me, but it certainly was the inspiration for this book. 
I also like the edges of war. I was very moved by All Quiet on the Western Front, which was Eric Marie Remarque's great novel about the end of World War One, and who was the last soldier who died in this war. And that got me thinking, you know, who was the last person who died in the American Revolution? What were these last battles? We're taught to think that Yorktown ended the war, but they kept fighting for 20 months. Yeah. What were these battles? Why couldn't they see that the war ended? Why didn't they have the hindsight that yeah. we have today? Well, and because we all do grow up watching Hollywood movies and we grew up reading novels and it's a very human sense that you just want things to have a nice clean end and you don't want to continue for months and months with a guerrilla action and fighting all over the world in these places with figures maybe that you can't necessarily pronounce when you're a kid. You want to have it sort of right in the back of your cereal box and then get on your bike as we did when we were kids, right? And just get out of there. Absolutely. (laughs) That was the thing. And they play the world turned upside down and that sounds so great. So you just get get out of there. But that's not what Uh, happens after it, right? (laughs) Well, you know, the world turned upside down. That's another myth of the war, that when the British surrendered at Yorktown, their band played that song, the world turned upside down. We don't really have any evidence that they played it. The British soldiers by that point were pretty drunk, a lot of them. And (laughs) they're first-person narratives of how the British just trashed their arms and the Americans supervising the surrender had to lay down the law and say, hey, don't trash your arms, don't get drunk, stay sober. The British soldiers who surrendered were not a happy bunch. Yeah, I can't imagine that they would be. And yet that didn't occur to me, at least until I read after Yorktown. And I said, well, gosh, it's clear now. It makes sense. And they weren't happy. They weren't going to be just playing music, even though you have General O'Hara there who turns over the sword. And we, we know that part of it. And that's accurate. I take it from reading the book. These other figures are sort of forgotten, maybe because they don't fit into a broad, grand narrative. One of them that I'd like you to introduce us to is North Carolina's David Fanning, a Tory, again, speaking in the terms of the time, as you said, meaning loyal to the crown. Uh, Describe him to us. Give us a little taste. Fanning, in many respects, was a typical loyalist, except that he was a very good military man as well. He was kind of weird in that he grew up, his parents died young. We don't know much about his background. He was raised by adoptive parents. We know that he had a medical condition called scald head. We're not sure what specific disease it was, but it resulted in hair loss, scaling, pustules. Um, These pustules smelled so bad. (laughs) We have one account that says Fanning didn't eat at a table or sleep in a bed. And for his entire life, he wore a silk cap under his hat. One account says his most intimate friends never saw his head naked. But he became a loyalist. Apparently, he was alienated by some of his fellow residents who were rebels in South Carolina. Later, uh, he fought in North Carolina, and he started his own loyalist militia. This war in the South was vicious. Generals at the time, Nathaniel Green and his counterpart, General Alexander Leslie for the British, they normally referred to Native Americans as, quote, savages. Yet they started to refer to the war in the South between loyalists and rebels as a savage war. It was unlike anything they had ever seen. There was terrorism, there was brutality, it involved civilian populations, and Fanning was part of that. And who started it, who who fired the first brutal shot, who knows? But it became a war of retaliation, of neighbors fighting neighbors. Fanning was one of the more successful loyalists. He was brutal from the rebel side, but from the loyalist side, he was a great defender. He was not going to let atrocities done to loyalists go unanswered. He was pursued. He was arrested. He escaped. 
he was hated by the rebels. And I, when I say rebels, I mean what we now call the Americans, the people who became part of the United States, but they were rebels to the crown. He eventually, toward the end of the war, escaped with his skin and his 16-year-old bride intact. He escaped to Charlestown, which was then occupied by the British. Like so many loyalists, he ended up as an honored veteran in New Brunswick, Canada. He was even elected to the provincial assembly. At, at one point, he was expelled from the assembly. There seemed to have been something to do with a rape. Yeah. He felt that they were trumped up charges based on his reputation as a vicious loyalist leader down in the United States. He was eventually pardoned by the government, and he lived a long life, as so many of them did, as a farmer. He was typical of so many loyalists who felt abused and terrorized by the rebels, and he fought back. You said uh, he saved his skin, David Fanning, and I thought, considering what his skin was like, whatever that skin condition was, might not have been the best thing for him. But again, <laughs> not, a, not a Hollywood leading man by any sense. This is another thing that makes After Yorktown a real story. You're, you're getting the full picture, other than occasionally hearing about George Washington's smallpox scars. We don't hear much about the disease that people were fighting here. This is something that definitely plays a role here in your book, doesn't it? The fighting of the disease and the hunger, the hardship that people have where they're just trying to get food. The diseases were a list of 18th century horrors, especially in the South, from malaria to yellow fever to typhoid fever and typhus to worms to scabies to vermin-infested clothing. This was a nightmare. And often you would read letters from both the British and the Continentals describing how their forces were decimated, how they weren't really fighting forces because disease had just decimated them. In addition, the Continentals, Nathaniel Green, they didn't have any money. This was a bankrupt yeah. government, uh, or what passed for a government. Yes, yeah, and a Green would write letter after letter pleading with the governors of the states, saying, "Can't you at least send us clothing, send us food?" There are descriptions of areas of the South, and for that matter, areas of New Jersey and Westchester County and New York, of just decimation where both armies had gone foraging and there was nothing left. One person described farmers in Westchester County, which is just outside of New York, sort of the no man's land between Washington's army and the British army based in New York, where these people were walking zombies, to use modern language. You'd go up to them and they would be shell-shocked. They would try to hide food, but eventually the food was found. The British were in a better situation because the British could pay for food. And there was a lot of smuggling where nominal rebels would, <laughs> would sell their stuff across huh. the enemy lines. It drove Washington absolutely nuts. Yeah, you mentioned the whole idea of commerce. And I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, and not to mention as I read the book, that there's such a fight for, I guess we'd say today, the hearts and minds of people. If you can pay for things, well, they're going to be a little more loyal to you than they are to Nathaniel Green's army, let's say, or Mad Anthony Wayne, who's another person that you talk about in your book. So many challenges here that it makes so much sense to pick up after Yorktown and after that moment where you say, well, I thought that's what it ended. The whole war is so messy and so confused. It belies logic that there would have been a nice, clean handing over of the sword and an end to the war. One thing about Anthony Wayne is you talk about his nickname, Mad Anthony, being a misnomer. But I also learned from your book that he is the ancestor of the fictional Bruce Wayne, Batman. So thank you for that. I didn't expect to get any Batman when I picked up after Yorktown. <laughs> Well, I think the original author of Batman was a history buff, and he, he made that up, of course, but it's a nice little revolutionary piece of trivia. Anthony Wayne was a terrific general. 
he had a reputation for being reckless, but he really wasn't. He was an aggressive fighter, but he was very methodical and very disciplined in training his troops and in his battle preparations. He did have the nickname Mad Anthony, but it was kind of a misnomer. He wasn't insane and he wasn't angry. (laughs) How did he get the nickname? He was friends with, I guess the technical term is nuts. He was friends with a guy who was nuts. His name was Jimmy the Rover, and they called him the Commodore. And he occasionally did some spying for Anthony Wayne. One time, Jimmy was arrested by some officers for disorderly conduct. And Jimmy was really angry at this, and he asked the sergeant, well, who ordered my arrest? And the sergeant said, General Wayne ordered it. And Jimmy asked, well, does this mean General Wayne is angry at me, or is this a joke? And the sergeant said, General Wayne is very angry at you. And so Jimmy said, well then, Anthony is mad. Farewell to you then, Mad Anthony's friend. And that nickname, Mad Anthony, just sort of took hold. Wayne himself hated the nickname. You imagine so, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Who wants to be called mad? It it just goes down through history, and that may have been why Bob Kane, you were mentioning Batman's creator, picked them out because he thought, well, that sounds pretty good for a guy who's going to do all the things that eventually Bruce Wayne would do. But yeah, And again, you don't think that there are going to be many things to learn about the revolution necessarily. But there were so many things in here where you realize you may have read it, as you said, out of the newspaper when you were a child or off a cereal box or who knows where and you were just misinformed and then you carry all of that misconception into adulthood and then one day you're sitting there in your 40s and you're reading after Yorktown and you say oh gosh I was completely wrong about that and now that I think about it it may it really doesn't make much sense <laughs> that it would have just ended <laughs> so I I thank you for so many of those moments in the book and things like Mad Anthony well another one you, you had mentioned the Swamp Fox now I'm old enough so that I remember a Walt Disney show about Swamp Fox Francis Marion. And, of course, we have come up with a movie called The Patriot starring Mel Gibson in the year 2000, in which he essentially modeled his character after Francis Marion, so-called Swamp Fox. Marion was barely known until the... 1820s or so, the early 1800s, I don't know if it was the 1820s or 18-teens, but the guy who wrote the fictional biography about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, a guy named Parson Weems, he wrote an equally fictional biography about Francis Marion and named him, he exaggerated the Swamp Fox legend. Unlike Mel Gibson, you know, movie star handsome, Marion was really short. He walked with a limp, and he was middle-aged during the war. (laughs) People weren't as tall then as they are now anyway, but even for people in that era, he was short, but he was lean, he was swarthy, he was really in shape. He limped on one leg. There had been a couple of debacles in the South where two American armies, rebel armies, were forced to surrender to the British. And Marion escaped the last debacle in which Charlestown surrendered to the British because a couple of months before, he was asked to attend a party in Charlestown. He was a South Carolinian. Marion said, okay, I'll put in a token appearance. I'm not really a party kind of guy. I don't really drink. He came to this party. He put in a token appearance. He was up on the second floor. He said, well, time to leave. He actually didn't want to go through the first floor and make a big scene. So he said, hey, listen, I'm athletic. I'll just jump out the second floor onto the ground. I I can make that easy. Well, he didn't make it easy. He broke his leg. And because he was recovering from a broken leg, he missed it several months later when the rebels surrendered Charlestown to the British. But his escape, his broken leg, was fortunate because he helped keep the rebel cause alive during that period 
before Yorktown and when the British controlled the Carolinas and Georgia. He had a band of militia. It ranged from half a dozen men to to upwards of 100 men. It depended on who he could get. And he did guerrilla warfare and hit and miss. And that was about when he got the nickname Swamp Fox, at least apocryphally, from Bannister Tarleton, one of the British officers. He would run away into the swamp. He was a very cautious general, and he became far more in modern history than he was back in uh, the 18th century. You mentioned Tarleton, and that's the British nemesis in the Mel Gibson movie is based on. And I, his descendants weren't too happy. I remember they said that the devil has to always speak with a British accent and things like lighting the church on fire was not very kind to his reputation. And I wondered, how did you feel about that movie overall after having written After Yorktown? I'm not an expert in Tarleton. Tarleton actually ended up surrendering at Yorktown. So I didn't follow him as much as other people have. But Francis Marion himself, just one difference between the fictional Mel Gibson and Francis Marion. Francis Marion was a slaveholder. He was a plantation owner. And Mel Gibson in the movie seemed to be, oh, gee, you know, I... I'm such a friend of African-Americans. I don't have any slaves. These are all my employees. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> didn't, didn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had that actor come up, that one African-American actor, and he says, no, we're freedmen. He freed all of us, and we work here on his plantation. And I said, that doesn't sound like it would have, unfortunately, been exactly right. There weren't a lot of rebel plantation owners who freed their slaves, if indeed there were any. One of the constant conflicts in negotiating a truce and the final evacuation, both from Charlestown, from New York, was the status of African Americans. The British and their loyalist militia would steal rebel property. Rebel property meant slaves. And the rebels kept insisting, you know, we're not going to sign a truce so you can evacuate the city unless you restore all of our property, meaning the slaves. Both in New York and in Charlestown, which are the two major areas where these kinds of negotiations went on, it was a real sticking point, and the British ended up being on the side of the angels. They evacuated at least about 20,000 African-Americans escaped slaves. Now, the British had their own slaves, and they took them with them, but they felt an obligation that those slaves who had come over to fight for the British, who had sought refuge under the British, deserved to stay free. And they did under the British. Now, African-Americans weren't, <laughs> weren't happy to be slaves, believe me. There was constant fear among the slave owners that the slaves would rebel. When a rebel colonel, John Lawrence, the son of a slave owner, and in fact, at one point, John Lawrence's father, Henry Lawrence, was one of the largest slave traders in the South. John Lawrence, who was a young guy, he was educated in Europe. He came up with a proposal, well, listen, why don't we offer freedom to any slave who wants to fight for us. The British had already done this on their side. He made this proposal before the South Carolina and North Carolina legislatures, which were aghast. You mean putting rifles and arms in the hands of our slaves? No way. And John Lawrence was very frustrated by this. And although some African-Americans did fight for the rebel side, mostly free men and mostly from the north, most of them ended up trying to escape into British lines and many of them fought or worked for the British. My guest is author Don Glickstein, and I'm honored that he's sharing about his debut book, After Yorktown, The Final Struggle for American Independence. You'll also want to check out donglickstein.com, where you'll find a lot of neat pictures and cartoons. Publishers Weekly writes, quote, 
Glickstein relies on an impressive array of primary sources, which he assiduously mines for the back and forth of important battles, the interesting biographical details of the major personalities during the war, and the tragic costs of war, unquote. Those costs were paid by people on all sides. You just talked a little bit there about Africans living in bondage in the colonies at the time, and that's something you definitely do cover in After Yorktown, I want people to know, because that's one of those sort of untold stories. But you also have the British, the Patriots. As for the Native Americans, you make the distinction that the Native tribes never fought for the British. They fought with them, that they were allies. So... Publishers Weekly there talking about the costs being paid by people. This is a recurring theme, and yet the people are much harder than I would have thought. For instance, we talked a little bit about Generals Leslie and Green. They try to organize a simple prisoner swap, and it fails. And you think, <laughs> gosh, first of all, you don't have food to feed anybody. You, you know, you, you're supposed to be so chivalrous. Look at you all when you're painted into paintings. You all look so gallant, and you can't even set aside your petty disagreements to do a prisoner exchange, which will benefit both of them. So I wondered if you, researching this topic, found that unwillingness to negotiate as surprising as I did when I read After Yorktown. Well, that's actually kind of funny, the British reaction, because the British thought that they could just negotiate prisoner exchanges like they do prisoner exchanges with the French or the Spanish or anybody else. But the American rebels said, we have to obey our civil authorities first. And there are many things we can do, but there are many things we can't do without the permission of the civil authorities. There are some instances that are really funny talking about prisoner exchanges. The American rebels, uh, Nathaniel Green for one, they, he was trying to negotiate a prisoner exchange with the British. And his counterpart was General Alexander Leslie. And Alexander Leslie just threw up his arms and he reported to his superior that he couldn't do a prisoner exchange with Green because Green's a, quote, regular lawyer. <laughs> general Carleton up in New York, the British general commander-in-chief, had a similar experience and he was frustrated with Washington. And at one point he wrote to Washington and he was saying, listen, you know, all we're trying to do is do something humane. I'm unclear as to the process you want me to follow. Am I supposed to negotiate with you? Am I supposed to send a delegation down to Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Congress will accept my delegation? Or should I rely on you to represent our interests? Or will Philadelphia Congress send a delegation up here to New York for us to negotiate? Just tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's really a remarkable uh, quote from Carlton. I'm paraphrasing it, but that was the gist of it. Again, very messy. There's not a chain of command. There's nobody who answers to anybody else. The book, The First Congress, that I read recently by Fergus Bordewick, and he writes in there about how nothing is settled. They don't even know where they're going to be meeting. And when they try to build the first building there in New York, people are suspicious because they say, look, they're making a beautiful building because New York wants to steal the national capital. When we, are, you know. <laughs> It's so hard to put your mind back in those times, I find. And that's a great thing about a book like After Yorktown Again, it just draws you into it. And I felt like sort of all those things that I learned, you know, third grade is a long time ago or whenever you learn about this stuff and visit Philadelphia and see the Liberty Bell. So these are all items maybe you see on a plaque on the side of the road. We certainly have plenty of them around here in northern New Jersey for the Washington retreat route and that kind of thing, the Hessian invasion, all of these signs. You in Schenectady, New York, you grew up with those. And I wanted to give you a moment just to say what we learn in After Yorktown about that city sort of at the elbow of the Mohawk River. Schenectady was the frontier in 1690, and it was the frontier in the 1780s when it was facing a force of British and Indians. The Native Americans, most of them, the vast majority, sided with the British because the British had made good faith efforts to keep land speculators, rebel land speculators, from stealing their land. For years, Native Americans had been writing state governments saying, hey, listen, 
your people are trespassing on our territories. Keep your people back to where our treaties say they should be. And for years, the state governments ignored it. Washington was a huge land speculator. He owned land in Ohio and Kentucky and Pennsylvania, and that was Indian territory. The Indians said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They were fighting a war of survival. They picked the wrong side. They lost big. When the treaty was finally signed, the Treaty of Paris, the Indians were just flabbergasted. Not one line in the treaty addressed them. In Parliament, the people who were trying to defend the Native Americans were aghast at the treaty. They said, how can we abandon our allies like this? And the government, which did the treaty, said, well, we just feel that the Indians can best be dealt with by the people who know them the best. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't quite work out for Native Americans. Many of them ended up moving to Canada where they were given refuge, especially the Iroquois in upstate New York, but many of them continued to fight over the years, and I guess the last Indian battles weren't until uh, the late 1880s, 1890s. Interestingly, the one Indian nation that sided with the American rebels were the Oneidas, which are part of the Iroquois Confederacy. And just recently, about five or ten years ago, they finally concluded a treaty with the United States that guaranteed some of their land and guaranteed their casinos (laughs) in exchange for other rights that the New York state government recognized. It finally put an end to that. The Oneidas themselves, they were devastated, even though they sided with the Americans. They kept a small reservation, but most of them ended up in Wisconsin. Their land after the war was constantly encroached on and they were impoverished. They couldn't feed themselves. And every time they needed food, they ended up selling more of their land. It was not a pleasant situation for either the Oneidas or the nations who fought the American rebels. That was one of Washington's early careers was being a surveyor. I thought of that, as you said, about him walking in there and them telling him, get these people out of here, surveying it. I mean, imagine if you're living in your house, I guess, and you sort of picture somebody who's coming in and already measuring the drapes to throw you out of it. And you say, hey, I live here. I have a deed and everything. It's like, it was, you know, and I, I don't mean to laugh about it and make light of it, but it's like, I don't know what else you do when you're reading about just the, just the double dealing. I mean, it's one thing when things are accidental, but in After Yorktown, you write a lot about this, and I was sort of flipping through the pages. Maybe people could hear while you were talking for this quote, which is, Much of the anti-Indian violence was against neutrals and even allies. As in Vietnam and Afghanistan generations later, whites often couldn't or didn't distinguish between native friend and native foe, unquote. So I'm sincere again when I say that I learned so many things in your book for the first time. But the role of the Native people was probably the one that surprised me the most. So where did you go for those primary sources? We talked about you digging deep there, or Publishers Weekly did there in their review. So where did you go? Because a lot of these tribes, they don't have a written language. So where do you go to learn their experiences? I stand on the shoulders of giants, and there have been a couple of authors who have just been terrific in researching some of the stuff. One is Barbara Graymont, and she wrote a book about the Iroquois in the American Revolution. And there have been others, Colin Calloway, who is still very active. He wrote The American Revolution in Indian Country. There are also Indian agents. The British agents would write on the Indians' behalf and report what was happening to the British government. So those papers are around. And, of course, there were reports from other rebel Americans writing about what the Indians said. And the stuff is hard to find, but it is around. And there are a variety of sources for that kind of information. 
Another front on the war that was surprising to me is Gibraltar. I think that'll be surprising to people that they're going to visit there when they pick up after Yorktown because the Spanish are backing the rebel forces because they want to get back that island fortress. So tell us uh, just for a minute about that. Did that also surprise you? I'm, I picture you having many Eureka moments, so I, I'm sorry I keep asking. <laughs> well, this was a world war. It was fought from South America to the Arctic. It was fought in India. It was fought in Africa. It was fought even as far west as Arkansas. There's a book <laughs> that they actually wrote about Texas and the American Revolution and how Texas cattle helped feed Spanish soldiers who were fighting the British. The French and British had were ancient enemies. They had been fighting each other since the Middle Ages. The American Revolution was just another one of the wars between the French and the British. And for the first part of the war, the Americans were a proxy for the French. The French were supplying arms to the Americans, and I say Americans, American rebels, even before the French formally entered the war. The Spanish didn't want to enter the war. The Spanish were suspicious of these radical rebels who didn't like kings. The Spanish were a monarchy, of course. The Spanish had also seen how these land-hungry rebels had invaded Indian territory, and the Spanish, which owned all the land west of the Mississippi, were very wary of the American rebels. The Spanish never became an ally. They were co-belligerents. Why did Spain enter the war at all? France persuaded them to. In the early 1700s, Spain had lost a war to Britain. And one of the consequences of that war was that Spain had given Gibraltar to Britain, quote, in perpetuity, according to the treaty. As soon as the Spanish signed that treaty, they were having second thoughts. Yeah. Gibraltar, of course, is on the Spanish mainland. Who wants a foreign presence <laughs> on your homeland? The modern-day equivalent, I suppose, would be Guantanamo base in Cuba. The Cubans certainly don't want an American base there. The Spanish didn't want a British base in Gibraltar. The French said, come into the war and we'll fight as long as it takes to get you back Gibraltar. Why did the French want Spain in the war? The French wanted the Spanish fleet. Combined, the French and Spanish fleet could surely defeat the British fleet. In Gibraltar, there was a very long siege. The Spanish and French came up with some new technology, some high-tech weapons. A French engineer invented a floating boat that was a battery. It was filled with cannons. But the genius of this high-tech battery was that it wouldn't burn. The engineer used incredibly thick timbers. It had a system of pumping water over the outside of the boat. It used sand in between layers of these timbers. It was a floating battery that would not burn and would not sink. And the technology worked brilliantly for about a day. And then the British had their own little trick. They had some high-tech weapons as well. Their high-tech weapon was heating cannonballs, and they developed the technique. Now, obviously, if you heat a cannonball too much, it'll explode. <laughs> Sounds like a risky job. The British figured out a way to heat a cannonball so that when they fired them, they would embed into these floating French-Spanish batteries and slowly start burning. This huge French-Spanish assault on Gibraltar failed because the floating batteries burnt down. It also failed because the British had a really interesting commander named George Augustus Eliot. Eliot was what we would call an SOB. <laughs> he was a tough guy. His officers hated him. 
he was a vegetarian. There was one rumor <laughs> that his men had that he was hoarding flour so he could talcum powder his hair because, you know, they powdered their hair. This wasn't true. Elliot was hoarding flour because he knew he was being besieged. He was tough. He was fair. There were even instances of him whipping officers' wives who had bought contraband. There was one episode where some British officers owed Jews, and Gibraltar had a lot of Jews at that point. They owed these Jews some money, and the British officers didn't want to pay. They beat the Jews up. Elliot heard about this, and he disciplined his men. This was unusual. Minorities were not always treated fairly. But Elliot was a tough old guy, and he really was one of the heroes for the British at Gibraltar. Well, we've touched on Gibraltar now, I guess, and a bunch of these other sort of battlefields. So tell us about what you mark as the last battle of the American Revolution, June 25th, 1783. This is a trivia question I don't think anybody would get. So how <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're right. And even those who sort of know the answer get it wrong. The last battle of the American Revolution was fought in Cuddalore, which is a little town on the southeast coast of India. A French garrison was stationed there, and it was being besieged by sea. The British had a naval fleet on the ocean there, and it was being besieged by land. They had an army there. The French naval commander was a guy named Admiral Suffren. We in the United States would call him Suffren. His men nicknamed him Admiral Satan. He was this morbidly obese guy who nonetheless was very nimble. His Indian allies loved him because he was able to absolutely inhale the spicy Indian food. <laughs> he was a brilliant admiral, and he was able to drive off the British fleet. The French army commander in Cuddalore, now that he was relieved from the sea, the French army commander said, okay, we're going to do a raid against the British army that's surrounding the city. And in the middle of the night, he sent a force out to attack the French. It was a debacle. The French pushed them back. They defeated the British severely. And that was the last battle of the American Revolution because the next day, in the distance, there appeared a ship waving a white flag. It was a British ship coming from what is now Calcutta, Kolkata, and it had the news that the peace treaty had been signed several months before. It ended the war. They stopped fighting. They got a truce, and that was the last battle of the American Revolution in India by our ally, the French. Now, staying sort of in that neck of the woods, but fast forwarding to the current day, I mentioned in the earlier quote about the anti-Indian violence during the revolution that you brought up Afghanistan today, and the next president is going to inherit still a war in Afghanistan. We don't hear about it as much as we did in the early days, but it's still going on. Young men are still fighting and dying. We're still struggling with much of this guerrilla warfare, just like after Yorktown. I think people thought, oh, it must have ended, you know, when we switched presidents, but clearly it didn't. Things continue. So what lessons do you draw from having researched after Yorktown? <laughs> You, you want the magic plan on how to end the war, huh? <laughs> you no, know, just choosing the right person, the best person to be the role of commander-in-chief of the armed forces. You know, we really don't learn specific lessons from previous wars. Patterns don't necessarily repeat, but we can learn some processes and we can learn some, some techniques. What does history teach us? It teaches us to question assumptions. We don't always question assumptions. We certainly didn't question assumptions in Vietnam. History can teach us humility. It can teach us that, especially this period of time and the revolutionary period of time, it can teach us that it's very, very difficult 
for a foreign force to win in a foreign country. I have one last question that I wanted to go out on because when I first opened the book, you dedicate it to your mother, Lillian Hamlin Glickstein, for inspiring your love of history. My mom, Katina, also put me on this path to loving the past through personal experience. She lived through the London Blitz, so the period of World War II and Winston Churchill and all those sorts of grand images always stuck with me. So I wanted to give you a chance here to thank her on the air and to share a little bit about how those of us who are in the older generation can inspire today's young people to love the period in all history. That's really a great observation. The thing that my mother did was she made us aware of our environment. We grew up in upstate New York and, and Massachusetts. We were always going to visit museums and historical places. She looked at the world as, as a school. And that's what she gave me. We would visit Fort Johnson and Saratoga Battlefield, and we'd go to St. Lawrence Seaway, and we'd go to Old North Church and, and all of the revolutionary places, and we'd learn. One time, we went traveling to the South. This was during the late 1950s, very early 1960s, and we were in Virginia. This is a lesson that I'll never forget, and it's a lesson that parents should teach their kids. We went off into a restaurant in Virginia, and we were about to walk in, and my mother looked back, I say we, my sister and I, and she said, stop, I want you to look at this. And there was a sign on the restaurant door that said, whites only. And she said, I want you to look at that, I want you to understand that that is wrong. Then we went in to eat, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it's those kinds of lessons that parents can teach. Well, the passion that you just heard in Don Glickstein's voice, I want everybody to know you bring that to After Yorktown. It is an exciting book. You hear you're a man of a lot of mirth and laughter, so this is not a dark and foreboding book, even though war is never a pleasant subject. So so I want to thank you for sharing a lot of these forgotten stories and forgotten people and tragic tales, but also uplifting tales that occur in the American Revolution after Yorktown. All the best with the book, and thank you so much for joining me. Gene, thank you very much for hosting me. The book is After Yorktown. The Final Struggle for American Independence. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Again, we get a few pennies off every purchase, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. My sincere thanks to Don Glickstein for expanding our vision beyond the moment when Cornwallis' army surrenders to George Washington. Please visit today's guest at donglickstein.com. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next week for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. <laughs>